The error here is called an error of commission. It's picking the wrong thing to work on. It happens all the time. And so what we do is we have something called a market satisfaction gap, which I came up with just before I started the company. And basically, the remember those one to 10 scores? How important yeah. is hiding power? How satisfied? Without going into the math, it's pretty simple. But the more important it is and the less satisfied, the higher the gap. Welcome to Innovation Talks. Join us weekly as we discuss with distinguished industry guests how to refine and improve corporate innovation and new product development. Hosted by Paul Heller, Sophion Chief Evangelist. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Glad you could join us again. I hope you're all having a good week. Today we have a very special guest, uh, somebody I've known for quite a while. We're going to have a conversation with Dan Adams. Dan is the founder and president of the AIM Institute, and we'll talk about that. But he's also written a book called New Product Blueprinting, the Handbook for B2B Organic Growth. He's been in the business working with a lot of Fortune 500 corporations across many aspects of B2B. And uh, he built this uh, new product blueprinting, which we'll be talking about uh, from the ground up through many of those experiences. He's a chemical engineer. He's got many patents and innovation awards. And in fact, he's listed in the National Inventors Hall of Fame. So, Dan, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Paul. It's good to be with you. Yeah, really glad you could join us. Where are you joining us from today? Cleveland, Ohio. We just got about 17 inches of snow, so I'm delighted to be inside today. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I guess you're, you're known for getting snow there right against the lake, huh? We know snow here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. It's a little, little warmer where I am, but not by much. <laughs> well, hey, hey Dan, um, how did you get into innovation? Well, you know, I, I kind of got bit by the bug, I guess about 30 years ago. I was working inside of a chemical company, chemical engineer, but I went over to the dark side, Paul. I was in marketing. But still, <laughs> you know, every Friday I would wrap up my goggles, my lab goggles in a lab coat, and I'd go over. I had a really good buddy in the lab, and I would call him and say, Let, we're, I'm scheduling a technical breakthrough for this Friday afternoon. Every Friday, he'd laugh. And, <laughs> you know, we would try to do our technical breakthroughs. And, but, you know, the funniest thing, once we actually were highly successful, we stumbled on something, it was a lot of serendipity, ended up selling tens of millions of dollars of product. And I told people we used the J. Paul Getty formula of success, rise early, work hard, strike oil. <laughs> and so, but I got really excited. I mean, it was so much fun leading the team all the way through launch. And that kind of got the, that was the bug that bit me. And then from there, you know, while I was still inside this company, I started helping other teams, overseeing new product development efforts. Then in 2005, I thought, I bet I could do this outside of this company. And we started up the AIM Institute then. Yeah. So what is, what is the AIM Institute? So we are, in essence, a training company. Now, we have a lot of software and a lot of tools, but the only reason we have those is because we find it helps people implement our methods better. We really focus on one thing, Paul. We're really here to help B2B companies, business to business, do a better job primarily in the front end of innovation. 
So we focus on helping them understand their customer needs, voice a customer, interviews, that sort of thing. And so that's really it. Our, there's people out there who are really good at doing VOC for you, kind of like hired guns. Okay. But that's not us. Yeah. We kind of get excited when we can help people make this their own skill and build a competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, how did that get started? Well, it's kind of funny. You know, I got real excited about some of the things I was doing in this chemical company. I put together, I, I, I don't know if I could do it again, but for some reason, I stumbled on a process where you do some qualitative interviews and quantitative interviews and in a certain way, showing your notes to customer, doing things that were kind of weird at the time. And it was working so well. So I went to my boss and said, could you please get me fired? And uh, <laughs> he, he, he said, well, what, what, tell me again, Dan, why you want to do that? And, you know, I've been there like 29 years. So there's this really nice mm. severance package. So I said, I see. I'm going to need that severance package to start up a new company. So it's really tricky. We'll have another conversation sometime about how you get fired without, you know, losing your severance, but it worked out. <laughs> and then I yeah. started up the company. Yeah. Just with the intention of sharing with others what you had learned and, 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 and figured out and discovered, right? Yeah. 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 So basically, that's all right. So here's what we found. If you really want to understand customer needs well, uh, in B2B, you can do it. It's different in B2B than consumer goods, Paul. And I know you and I have talked about this, but imagine our company made hose, okay? On one hand, we go to a homeowner about their garden hose. And, you know, how much can they tell us? I'm not really sure. Now, imagine we go to Caterpillar and we talk to a, a mechanical engineer about her hydraulic hose. Oh, my goodness. The knowledge yeah. that engineer yeah. has, the, the insights, the interest. We can make her a hero at work, the objectivity. So the point is, if you're in B2B, by having intelligent conversations, with the people who you hope will be the customers, you can learn a huge amount of information. And so that's what our process helps people do. Mm -hmm. Why is that hard? Why, what do people struggle with? I mean, it sounds easy. Just go ask somebody what they think, but it's not easy, is it? No, it's not. And maybe there's, you know, maybe there's two obstacles. The first one is in consumer goods, we think we're smarter than the consumer, and we probably mm -hmm. are. You know, because we study this thing all the time. In B2B, you know, if you and I work for a company, we make pigments and those pigments are going to a paper producer. Well, guess what? That paper producer knows a whole lot more about their needs in paper production and quality. They're a lot smarter than we are about the job to be done of paper production. So I think the first thing is, as a B2B supplier, we have to recognize that we don't have anywhere near as much knowledge of our customers. And why is that important? Well, what we find is almost all the time when, when somebody comes to us for help, it could be anywhere in the world, we, we work globally, they say, we have a very special problem. Our problem is we start with our solution instead of the customer's needs. And I try to keep a straight face and say, yeah. Yeah, that happens about 100% of the time with big <laughs> <Yeah>. companies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so they have so the first thing is they have to recognize we can learn a lot with intelligent conversations with B2B customers. But then the next phase is well how to do that. 
And so we have found you need to do qualitative interviews. We call them discovery. Then you need to do quantitative interviews. We call them preference. So you might go out and do six, eight, 10 qualitative interviews. Now, here's what we learned. If you put them on like little digital sticky notes and display them in a web conference or a conference room, oh my goodness, people get so much more engaged and they, they, will, they will fill in the blanks and correct everything. And then if we let the customer lead the interviews by saying, well, what other problems? Go to the next sticky note. It's just a gold mine. So you do that first and you get all these customer outcomes, customer needs, basically. But see, here's the thing. Even if companies did that, most of them stop there. They absolutely need to go to the next phase, which is the quantitative one, and say, well, you said for your paint, you know, you wanted to improve hiding power. So how important is hiding power on a scale of one to 10? And how satisfied are you with the hiding power you get today on a scale of one to 10? And what we hope to find are some outcomes that are important that are not being satisfied. Mm -hmm. And that is the real key to this because a lot of people do VOC, voice of customer, it's right. kind of loosey goosey. And when they're done, they go, I don't know what to do with this. And mm. if I count the number of times somebody told me something, I just don't know. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people, yeah, there's a lot of people want to know how to do voice of customer, kind of the first part. You call about that diverging thing where you're, you're ex yeah. exploding it out. I think a lot of people struggle with just that. And then yeah. you're right. Then how do you converge it again? Well, to your, point, to your point, though, if I can build on that, they absolutely struggle with the diverging because sometimes yeah. their voice of customer, it is, hey, Mr. Customer, we had a great idea. You do like our idea, don't you? you know? <laughs> yeah, got it. Yeah. <laughs> They're validating, <Yeah>. right? <laughs> yes, yes, right. Leading the witness, right? Exactly, precisely, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, that's human nature. If somebody has an idea, they want to seek validation of the idea, right? It's kind of, yeah. so how do you set that aside? How, how do you teach people to not do that? Yeah, so what we tell people is this. We say, listen, if you've got a really cool idea, hypothesis or something, solution, that's great. Put it in the back of your mind. Now go into the interview, spend 100% of the interview seeking customer outcomes what problems they want to have fixed, what their ideal solution would be. Now, listen for outcomes. Now, if after the interview, the outcomes they gave you are a good match for your solution, you know, they connect up nicely, then you can do a little celebratory dance in the parking lot before you get back in your <laughs> rental car, okay? Like, woo, we did it, we're on the right track, you know? Yeah. But, but what if this happens? What if the outcomes are going here, and your solution is missing. It's like two ships passing in the fog. Haroom, right? Total <laughs> mess, right? You know? yeah. What do you do then? Well, you better find a different solution if your goal is to serve that market. Or if your mandate was go find me a home for this cool technology, then you need to look at a different market. Yeah. But always start with customer outcomes. Yeah. I know there are a lot of companies that historically have been technology driven, right? They're going to yes. work on they're going to create something and then go look for a market. I mean, that's, you know, it was always in the hands of R and D historically to come up with uh, what the product should be. And a lot of companies are shifting that to marketing and, and understanding the market. Is that, is that what you're seeing as well? I absolutely am. 
part of the problem comes, they get a little confused between technology development and product development. Okay. So my definition of technology development is it's science facing, product development is market facing. Mm -hmm. Technology development takes your money and turns it into knowledge. Product development takes your knowledge and wow. turns it back into money. They're totally <laughs> different. I love that. That is yeah. awesome. Yep, totally yeah. different. So what I tell people is have a blast with your technology development. It builds core competencies across your company. But as soon as you think it might be appropriate for a market and you're ready to test it, because eventually it better be selling something to somebody, right? Yeah, yeah. Then you have now shifted from technology development to product development. And so start the process just like you didn't even have the technology and find out what the customers need. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Don't bias bias that discovery on the technology. Yeah, exactly. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. You mentioned um, virtual sticky notes and you mentioned rental car. And I'm thinking your approach must have changed radically in the move from being on site to being virtual. Tell me about that. How's that gone? Whoa, it's it's been a huge shift for us. It's um, It's been one of the best things that's ever happened to us. Wow. And now the pandemic has been unfortunate in, in many different levels. But here's what we found. During the Great Recession, the last crisis, our clients really couldn't go out and do much traveling and spending money. So we had to start experimenting with WebEx and GoToMeeting and so forth. And we were surprised to see how powerful we called them remote interviews at the time. Hmm. Now, 10 years later or whatever, you know, the, 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 the pandemic comes around. And so we started really experimenting with this. Now we call it virtual VOC. And what we found is, yes, the gold standard for a two-hour interview is definitely in-person versus a two-hour you know, virtual VOC. No doubt, body language, can take tours, all that. However, it probably took you 10 hours to get to and from that in-person interview. Yeah, so, right. You know, a better question is, how do I balance virtual versus in-person? Now, what we're finding, Paul, is you can have incredibly effective qualitative and quantitative interviews virtually, and you can just drive your product, your your project so much faster if mm. you have a heavy dose of virtual VLC. Easier to schedule, lining up calendars, easier to get people to the meeting. Everything mm -hmm. goes really fast and goes really well virtually. Wow. Have you had any challenges around getting people engaged, you know, if they're in the conference room, you know, you know, they're paying attention if, and they're yeah. involved. If they're in virtual, have you had problems with people or they're doing other work concurrently, they're multitasking? Has that caused any issues? It's interesting. You know, you and I and everybody else has probably, we've been in countless Zoom meetings and yeah. I bet you we've kind of taken a little time and checked our email a few times, right? Yeah. Right, so right, uh, right. what we find though in these interviews is uh, it's hard to explain, but it's very visual. Let's say I was mm. interviewing um, a paint producer because I make ingredients. And after a little bit of warm up, I'd say, tell me about your problems. And they say, well, we're having a hard time removing crayon remarks from painted services. So I'm going to, and that's going to go up on a sticky note. Okay. And I'm going to probe. Mm -hmm. There are special probing methods we train our clients in. And really, well, what, you know, when did you see that happen? How often can you describe the impact on your customer? So I'm probing and they're very engaged. And then after I ask some questions, I say, well, what other problems are you having? 
And they go, well, you know, the hiding power doesn't hide very well over dark. And so because they are owning the interview, it's not like I have question number 17 on my list yeah. now. You know, right. You know? <laughs> so they, it's almost like a, if you've ever been, you've been in many brainstorming sessions, right? You don't fall asleep or start doing other things. You're engaged. Right. And that's right. what we find even with virtual. Now it does have, have help. It's helpful to have web cameras on. We can see people, but yeah, we don't find people dis, they disengage when I do a training workshop. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but they don't disengage during the uh, interviews so much. That's great. That's great. Well, you know, um, and then, so so it's this combination of the qualitative, the quantitative, the, the diverge, the converge. I know that wasn't exactly your words. What then? What then? How do they make decisions? Well, you know, I want to just hit on what you just said about diverge and converge, because those are great words. So when we say diverge, we mean getting all the outcomes that customers want. We yeah. say we converge, we're picking out the ones that are important and right. not satisfied. But somebody yeah. might say, well, why do you want to do that? Well, besides the fact that's the way the human brain works, you know, if I go and see a, you know, a, a whole bunch of food in front of me at a reception, I'm going to diverge and look at all, and then I'm going to converge, you know, on the, you know, the bacon wrap shrimp or something, you know. But, but more important in new product development, there's basically two types of innovation errors in the front end. The first one is an error of omission. That's failing to uncover all the customers' desired outcomes, all, whether articulated or not. And we're going to get those in those qualitative interviews. So we avoid errors of omission, which, by the way, no team has ever faulted for at the time because nobody knows they omitted it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so now we go and we do the quantitative preference interviews. And the error here is called an error of commission. It's picking the wrong thing to work on. Happens all the time. And so what we do is we have something called a market satisfaction gap, which I came up with just before I started the company. And basically, the remember those one to 10 scores? How important yeah. is hiding power? How satisfied? Without going into the math, it's pretty simple. But the more important it is and the less satisfied, the higher the gap. If you get over 30%, that tells you that the market is eager to see you work on it. So now we stop guessing or hoping, yeah. we get rid of confirmation bias. It's the single most important thing a company can do is to have unfiltered, unbiased data right from the customer on what they do and do not want. Yeah. Well, if you, if you take that, and put that in the NPD process of the customers you're working with, right? Yeah. Idea to launch or whatever they're calling it. Um, where does it fit and how does, how does it mesh against that? Great. Well, you, you at Sophion are masters of the stage gate process. And right. you know everybody's got different number of gates, five, three, you know, seven, whatever. But there's always one, sometimes it's called the money gate, right? Mm -hmm. It's that gate just before you start spending the big buckaroos, you know? before you go into the lab and push back the frontiers of modern science. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, so really blueprinting occurs everywhere up to that money gate. And so when our clients are done, our software generates a market case or a business case, depending upon how involved they are. And that, you and I were talking about this earlier, it's so important to know what information is needed at a gate. And so everything you need 
to drive out almost all commercial risk. In other words, if we do this right in the front end and somebody goes into the development stage, they should be able to say, this is great. As long as I can resolve my technical risk, there's hardly any commercial risk left because I know exactly what my market wants. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know you've heard me say it. it, it Stagegate, I th I look at it as a risk management methodology. It is right, yeah. and so what you're talking about fits perfectly in there. And if I'm a if I'm a gatekeeper and I got to make that decision, I, I feel a lot better about making that decision if I know we've done the type of things you're talking about, right? That's right. It's, you're spot on, Paul. You know, way back in 1971. Some research was done that found that the leading cause of new product failure was inadequate market analysis, not by a little bit. I mean, it was number two is way behind. And then just a couple of years ago, five decades later, there was more research that said the same thing. So here we are. We've got a bunch of B2B yeah. companies who are leading with their ideas. In many cases, they're not even asking the customers what they want. And the B2B customers could give them all the information that they needed. And commercial risk is their biggest problem. So we call this, um, you know, a, a target rich environment. I mean, it's ripe for opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot can be done. Yeah. Are there any particular industries where uh, this approach, obviously B2B, but within that category, any industries where they're having either more success or there's more need for this? Or, Well, great question. You know, we, we had the same question and we, we did some research about three years ago on what drives B2B organic growth. Came up with 24 growth drivers. And we did the importance and satisfaction. We basically did preference surveys with these people. Mm -hmm. Okay. Had, over 500 responses, over 10,000 years of B2B yeah. responding experience in it. And you know, it's the funniest thing. We, we, we divide all B2B companies into four groups, materials, components, equipment, and service. So if one of your listeners goes, which one am I in? Mm. Well, materials, if you make a chemical or a plastic or aluminum, that's material. If you're a component producer, it's generally something that you can still see when it's when it's all in the final you know assembly. It doesn't yeah. lose its identity like a plastic might get melted in or a chemical got, might get blended into a paint. Okay. Right. Right. And then the third one is equipment, and this is nothing more than really an assemblage of materials and components. And the fourth one is services. Funny thing, we looked at the data, we saw almost no differences between those four groups of B2B suppliers. Wow. Very, very wow. subtle differences. Yeah. Then we did more research just last month on B2B VOC skills, did exactly the same thing. And we saw almost no difference depending upon what type of product. We saw almost no difference depending upon how big the company was. Mm -hmm. The only thing that changed their level of VOC skills was two things. One, did they have training in it? And two, was it a common practice in their new product development process to do VOC? Was it required of them? Right. Other than that, everybody's kind of in the same sinking boat, if you will. <laughs> you know, uh, do you find a lot of companies that, well, I know, I know my answer on this one, but I'm curious of yours. You find a lot of companies where VOC is not required? 
Yeah, you know, it's kind of surprising. We had a lot of respondents who said, no, we really don't do that here. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it, it, you know, and it's so, I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that we do that I call awkward realities. In fact, I have a, a micro blog, I call it awkwardrealities.com. Oh, wow. And if you think back in history, you know, here's, here's some examples. An awkward reality is this. Before Dr. Deming came along in the quality movement, we had a bunch of inspectors measuring parts coming out the production line. Then he taught us statistical process control. and we, we don't do that much anymore. Or if you were a salesman 30 or 40 years ago, you might have used the ABC method of selling. ABC, always be closing, okay? Now we do <laughs> consultative selling. And you can talk about you know payback period, going to discounted cash flow. So we've had a history of things that seemed normal at the time mm. that made absolutely no sense later. Now, I think the biggest one is this. We got a whole bunch of B2B companies out there. And picture a medieval catapult, if you will, okay? And picture over, here's the castle. We're launching, we're launching boulders at this castle. But instead of a castle in medieval times, it's our customers and we're launching with the catapult. Here comes the next, product incoming rounds we're firing <laughs> products at our customer and we could have sat down and had an intelligent conversation about what their needs now think about that for a minute of all the ways you could understand market needs can we think of anything that is less efficient than going through the entire product development process first and firing products at our customers yeah, yeah it's yeah. crazy but that's what we're doing today right right and there's some companies that the leader or leaders are the ones who are really saying, look, this is what our product's going to be. And I see inside the organization saying, hmm. sometimes they line right up to that. And then you either win or win or lose based on whether the leader was right. What's your thoughts on some of that? Well, that's a, that's a funny, that's a great observation on your part, Paul. So, so imagine this, we got a team and they say, damn, we got all these outcomes. We want to go back into product discovery, qualitative. We want to go into preference, and we're going to ask them maybe importance and satisfaction on 10 outcomes. But we had, we had an idea our boss thought was really good. Should we put it in there? The customer never asked for it. I right. said, you bet. Put it in there, and let's just drive a silver stake to its heart. You know, <laughs> That way, you can yeah. go back to the boss and say, you remember that 30% market satisfaction gap target? Well, your idea had 2%. <laughs> <laughs> well at least you have some data right you just have yeah, some... well that's a key that's right yeah <laughs> excuse my interruption paul cutting in here dan it's really fun to talk with i hope you're enjoying this conversation and there's so much more to it that we decided to split this into two episodes so this is the end of part one and join us next week for part two until then, I hope you have a great week and we'll talk to you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week for Innovation Talks with Paul Heller. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For additional information on today's topic, check out sophion.com, S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com, where you will find plenty of innovation-centric content and corporate best practices. If you'd like to discuss anything with Paul or would like to get in touch with the show, email us at talks at sophion.com. <laughs>